This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. There's an interesting piece that moved today that a reprint of Mein Kampf, you know, that's the book that Adolf Hitler wrote before he became Adolf Hitler, as you will, uh, has become a bestseller in Germany. It has sold close to 100,000 copies in 2016, and a lot of people apparently are really interested over there in reading this book. And that, of course, is causing a lot of people to become very nervous, and understandably so. Uh, this is a book that was foundational to Adolf Hitler becoming what he eventually was. And so people say, well, if all these people are going to be reading this book, this must mean that a lot of Germans are beginning to move back towards neo-Nazism and white supremacy and world domination and all those other things. Well, other people are arguing, wait, wait a second, let's not leap to a conclusion here. The fact that people are reading this book may have something to do with that for sure. There could be those who are doing that, but many of them are also now too young to have been alive during that period and are interested in history and want to understand what it was that created the world as it was, the country they live in, the history of where they live. And that leads to a third group in this whole thing. And that would be the group of people who want this book as a result banned. We shouldn't, they would argue, even have this book out in public. This book is dangerous. It's inflammatory. It's incendiary. We need to get rid of this book. It should be off the shelves. It should be out of the stores. Nobody should have a copy of this. And as I was reading this story today, it dawned on me that this particular case is the perfect storm for the discussion of banning books because there may be others. There could be other books that fall into the same category. But I got to think that when you're talking about a book written by Adolf Hitler, there are not too many that would get people talking more about whether or not a book should be banned. Well, Franklin Carter is an editor, and he is also a member of the Book and Periodical Council Freedom of Expression Committee. He joins me now. Uh, Franklin, thanks for doing this tonight. It's a pleasure. Thank you for, uh, yeah, thanks for being here. Uh, So I think it's fair to say that a lot of people would say on its face, this would seem to be a potentially dangerous book for people to have in their hands, that it shouldn't be published, it shouldn't be sold, it shouldn't be available for people. Uh, It's a book that's laden in a lot of ways with symbolism, with Adolf Hitler's ravings, um, and it's with ideas that most people would vehemently disagree with. So should a book like this find its way onto bookshelves or into libraries? Should people be able to read this, or should we say, no, no, it should be just completely taken off the market? Oh, people should be completely free to read it. Why? Well, first of all, free people read freely. Um, but I would I would begin by questioning the assumption that it's a really dangerous book. Um, first of all, the the copy of the book that's that's a bestseller in Germany now, which has sold you know more than eighty five thousand copies, is. Uh, is a special edition that is prepared by an institute of contemporary history in Munich. It's um, it's not merely Hitler's words, you know, in book form. Uh, it also contains the scholarly annotations and criticisms and corrections um, of historians. So you don't you don't just get Hitler in that book. You also get his critics. And you know, eighty five thousand copies. 
is a respectable sales figure for one year. That's how many were sold in 2016. But you also have to remember that before World War II ended, more than 12 million copies of that book were published and in circulation in Germany. And a lot of those books are still around. So if the book is really so dangerous, why is Germany still you know, a liberal democracy? Because presumably a lot of the, maybe not 12 million, but a lot of people would have read it and not everybody is following his thought process. Right. People, you know, not everybody who reads the book becomes a Nazi. In fact, most of the people who read the book, if they can actually finish it, because it's a long, rambling, ranting book, um, are repelled by it. I would also point out that here in Canada, the book has been uh, fully legal for a long time. I have a copy of Mein Kampf in my own library. And I, you know, I got it in the 1970s when I was a teenager. You know, it, it's been freely available here. Um, Canada is not in any danger of becoming a, a Nazi state. There would be those, and I, I, I don't know if you would agree or disagree, but there would be those who would argue, though, that this does make up the the underlying foundation, if you want, of the manifesto or of the belief system that led to where Adolf Hitler ultimately ended up. And so this is this may not by just by itself lead to someone, but it's a stepping stone. And therefore, if we remove these pieces from the thought process that some people might have, if we don't expose them to this, maybe we remove the possibility that they may go down that path. What would you say to that? Um, I think it's always better when a book conveys really dangerous or really bad ideas, that we make it publicly available, that we read it, that we think about it, that we debate it, and we expose it for what it is. Um, when you ban a book, uh, yes, you do try to take it out of circulation, but you also give it an allure that it might not otherwise have. Um, one of the reasons that the book is doing so well in Germany right now is that the German government for 70 years discouraged Germans from selling it or reading it at all. So what you can't have, you want. Exactly. You you referred to something a minute ago, though, that it's helpful to read these things. What do we gain? Let's say that um, we can use something less inflammatory, perhaps, than Mein Kampf, but let, let's say that you are completely opposed to some philosophical point of view. What do you gain by reading a book that someone may not want you to, but that exposes you to the complete opposite view that you hold? Well, you, you get an understanding of how your, your opponents think. I mean, you can take me as an example. I went to university in the early 1980s during the Cold War, and at that time I was a student of um, Soviet affairs. I spent a lot of time at the University of Toronto reading Marxist-Leninist dogma. In fact, I like to tell my friends that I have forgotten more Marxist-Leninist <laughs> dogma than people bother to read in the first place. <laughs> There's not a lot of people lining up to read that stuff these days, but I get your point. Right. You know, you gain an understanding of how your adversaries think. You gain an understanding of their strengths and their weaknesses. And if you want to defeat anti-democratic politicians and their followers, you, you have to understand them first. But that's so contrary to what most people want to do today. We don't want to read things we disagree with. We like people to feed it to, to be in an echo chamber. We like people to tell us and solidify the things that we like. I mean, even Facebook, for example, has, um, uh, what do you call it? They have um, algorithms that will 
b- pump stuff out to you that reflects your views because you're going to like that more. I agree, and that's a problem. All it does is reinforce your prevailing biases. It doesn't expose you to the way other people think, and um, you know it makes you more insular. So, I mean, and I agree with you on that. I, I, and I've said that on this show before. I think it's, it's hugely important that we actually expose ourselves to positions we don't share because it makes you understand, it clarifies in your head those things. But you know as well as I do that around this country and around the States and around other parts of the world, there are books that may have anti-Semitic messages or may use racist, in modern day, racist language or uh, other things. And so people say, we can't have those. We can't have our kids exposed to things, you know, to kill a mockingbird we can't, that uses the N-word. We can't have our kids reading that. How, what do we say then to that? Well, I'd like to point out um, an assumption in this argument that many people don't often notice. Um, when people call for the banning of a book or a magazine or a website, they're usually acting out of fear. Uh, they want, or anxiety, they want the publication removed from the public sphere because they think they will reduce its influence on people. And they believe that they will make society safer and a better place. This is a very old and a very common pro-censorship argument. But there are other dangers, and the danger is censorship itself. When you remove freedom of choice to read and to think about a so-called dangerous or offensive book, from ordinary people, and if you put that power into the hands of a much smaller group of judges or civil servants or police officers, you lose some of your freedom. Uh, you know, you may feel safer, but you're less free. So you have to decide which is the greater danger to society. Is it the free publication of offensive or obnoxious ideas, or is it government censorship? This is a question that educated, public-spirited adults can disagree about and do disagree about in Canada. I come down on the side that censorship is a greater danger to society than the free publication of hateful or obnoxious or offensive ideas. Well, and, and I mean, the obvious follow to that is if you are going to go down the route of saying censorship is okay because we want to prevent people from seeing these obnoxious or hateful ideas, Who becomes the arbiter of what falls under the category of hateful or obnoxious? Well, in in practice, in Canada, let's say, it would be politicians who write laws and uh, who turn the job over to judges or civil servants. But that's fine if the politicians are of a stripe uh, politically that you share. So you say, yes, I believe, I agree with that particular politician's view of what's obnoxious. But as soon as the other side gets in, now suddenly it's terrifying. Oh, yeah, because now somebody else is calling the shots. According to uh, the Book and Periodical Council, of which you're, you're a member, um, on the website it said, on the, the, um, it said that there are roughly 100 works that have been challenged in Canada, and these range from Bridge to Terabithia to, if I ran the zoo, Dr. Seuss to Handmaid's to The Handmaid's Tale. Do we have, at this point that you know of, do we have any books that have been banned in places in Canada? Well, uh, first I should make a distinction between a banned work and a challenged work. Okay. Um, The word challenge around the book and periodical council has a special meaning. 
it means that somebody has walked into a public library or a public school and has demanded the removal of a book or a magazine or some other publication. Very often, the challenge fails, but sometimes it succeeds. The key thing to notice is that it's not government censorship. It's kind of local citizen caused Local bureaucracy, sure. Well, you know... But who, ev- who eventually decide to ban it is what I'm saying. Parent, parents are usually the people who do it. Okay. And they, if they succeed, they do with the consent of a public library or with a public school. That's different from government censorship, which we do not have a lot of in Canada. But we do have laws that ban hate propaganda and sexual obscenity. And uh, at the border of Canada, for example... There are customs agents who have the authority to seize, turn back, and sometimes even destroy works that fall into that category. But very few Canadians hear about it. So the kinds of works that would be um, outright banned in Canada would be anti-Semitic works. For example, uh, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is a very old book that was uh, published initially in Russia, Uh, It purports to reveal a a vast Jewish world conspiracy. Uh, It's it's completely fraudulent, of course, but, you know, it's not easy to... I don't think it's possible to publish that book here. And there are all all kinds of other books uh, and works, particularly DVDs that have a really lurid sexual theme, child pornography, things like that. That's all strictly forbidden. It is, uh, yeah, it, it, it's such a complicated issue, and I, and I agree with you on the face, uh, in the broadest scheme, or the broadest sense, that it becomes very dangerous. It becomes very scary when we start saying, okay, let's start banning this and this and this, because you get down a road very quickly that becomes very convoluted, and who then ends up deciding? Because if, if we're going to ban things because we don't like it, everybody doesn't like something, and pretty soon everything gets banned. And and that, how do you untangle yourself from that? It's... um. It's it's very, very difficult. Uh, Franklin Carter from the Book and Periodical Council. Really appreciate your time tonight. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. It's, as I say, that that's the difficulty. You may have something that you think is really bad, and so you want it banned. And it may be. But then if we say, okay, we'll ban that, but then the person across the aisle from you who has a different view wants something banned that you don't think is so bad, and then someone else wants something banned because they're offended by it and it's banned, where does it stop? And this is the problem. Yeah, child sexual abuse, okay, I think there's probably not many people that would disagree with you cannot publish books that would demonstrate child sexual abuse. And some other things, absolutely. But this this story, to me... The idea that of publishing Mein Kampf and that people would actually get their hands on it, that to me is a piece of history. That to me is an explanation of something that happened. That's not something that we should say you can't get your hands on ever. That's what some people want. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I don't know if you've been watching the World Junior Hockey Tournament as we move along here. Uh, most people do. Most people make it part of their holiday tradition. At least many people do. If Whether they are diehards, whether they are can't-miss-a-minute fans, or whether they just are aware that it's on, people know that it's there. People tune in now and again. The, the TV numbers are usually pretty good. The buildings are usually pretty full. Well, things are appearing anyway to be slightly different this year. 
I'm going to bring in Don Robertson. He's usually here on Mondays. We didn't have a show Monday. Don, appreciate it. Happy New Year. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for talking. Oh, happy New Year, too. You want to know my resolution? Absolutely, I do. I want to be taller. Yeah, well. That losing weight thing isn't working. I want to be taller. If you stretch it, that's, that's a good idea. It makes it it'll all thin out. I, I would suggest some vertical stripes, but, uh, you know, <laughs> whatever works. Uh, you know what? You may get that tall, but I don't know if you'll ever get that good looking. Good point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's why I have a radio show, not on TV. Um, Don, I, I, I got to tell you that the World Juniors for, I don't know, at least a couple decades now has been the Christmas time event in sports around here it has i mean for canadians it certainly trumped for most canadians it's trumped the bowl games it basically beats out almost anything else that happens between christmas and shortly after new year's i gotta tell you i don't know if it's just me but i am feeling a lot less of a buzz just a a different sense a lesser sense of excitement about the world juniors this year well we don't have any uh you don't have any superstars and sports at almost any level. It's nice to have a couple Connor McDavid or Sidney Crosby's or Mario Lemieux or whatever you name them, or Kerry uh, uh, Price or uh, Justin Pogge. You know what I mean? Like you need, you need and, and I, I think that there doesn't seem to be that for us, right? Because you're talking about, or I'm talking about. Canadian kids that we know are going to go high in the draft, can't miss guys. You want to take a look at them. Austin Matthews last year, you know what I mean? So you want to enjoy all that. And and we, we don't have that this year, and it's in big cities now. And I think that, that's changed it a lot. Are you surprised, though, when you look around yesterday and, and, you know, during the commercial break, Luke brought up a good point. I was chatting with Luke during the break and he said, look, no, nobody really thought Canada was going to be in a quarterfinal game yesterday. So the tickets weren't all pre-bought. They figured it was going to be Slovakia and someone else. So maybe that explains why the building wasn't full in Montreal. But are you surprised that as this tournament has been going on, that the Canadian games have not been jam-packed? Um, no, not particularly, Scott. And I, you know, I, I, I've given it some thought, which is frightening on its own. Um, you've got it now in Toronto and Montreal, both cities, which have proven recently that they're not interested in, in junior hockey because they won't support them. The St. Michael's make, Mike's played downtown, Mississauga, Brampton, Brampton have gone to North Bay. There's nothing in Montreal. So they're not inherently junior hockey towns, and that matters. They're Montreal Canadian towns, and they're Toronto Maple Leaf towns. Now, when I say that, and you talk about NHL, Calgary and Edmonton did a bang-up job. Sold their tickets out in minutes for the whole thing. The difference being that the Calgary Hitmen play in Calgary and the Edmonton Oil Kings play in Edmonton, and they respectively draw anywhere from six to 8,000 people on a regular basis for their junior teams. The other thing that they haven't done, and Hockey Canada have made a mistake, admittedly. Uh, Scott Smith talked about it today. You know, they've overpriced themselves. You, you know, it's pretty tough getting 80 bucks for a junior game when you're basically paying what you would pay in half of the NHL buildings to watch an NHL game. Yeah, but, this is, but Don, this is the big thing. Like, Toronto and Montreal typically have been, whether you want to say successful or suckers, 
uh, one or the other. But if you put a big event into those cities, people will go. Not well, doesn't the, seem so now. I mean, one, the gimme putt is is Scott that they've had a great cup there. They just had two Toronto FC playoff games there. The Blue Jays were on a big run. The Raptors are doing well. And I think what Hockey Canada found out is there is not an endless pot of disposable income to watch sports in Toronto. The Leafs, now, you could use the Leaf playoff money because they've only had about five playoff games in the last 40 years. But, you know, the prices are very expensive. And, again, they don't have a base to build on. I'll bet you, and, and, and somebody will have it, the demographic of the people going are not people from Toronto. You'll see that there'll be people from Guelph, Kitchener, Milton, and all over the place. You could have had those games in Hamilton and and probably have been more successful. And and for those people who are not living in downtown Toronto making a Toronto salary, those are expensive tickets. Well, they aren't, and they're too, they're too much money for World Junior. I mean, they're not giving hot dogs and beer away at their Canada Centre when the Junior Games are on. They're still... You know, it's still 12 bucks for a beer and, and, and too much for a hot dog, right? In the, in the old days, when they ran these things, and it's outgrown that, admittedly, it was back around 86 or 87, uh, just when cops opened up, Shane Corson played, Steelhawks were around in the OHL version of them. Um, they, would, they would have games in Brantford. I believe there was a game in Dundas, which is probably where they should be. Like Latvia and Slovenia. I mean, I don't think I don't think they could sell out the Mountain Arena at fifty bucks a ticket if you were putting the game there. And what they do, Hockey Canada have, have done, is they've used the old marketing ploy that a company called Standing Room Own SRO used to do with minor pro hockey and and people that didn't traditionally sell out, and they would bundle the tickets. So if you want to see these three good teams, you got to buy these four dogs. So uh, Mike Moeller, goalie, bought a whole package was trying to trying to dump out the non-Canadian game, right? Because that was the only way to get good seats. Mm-hmm. You, had to, you had to buy a bunch of them. So I wouldn't even be surprised if a bunch of their tickets are sold and the people can't even give the bloody things away. But you, you said a minute ago, and I'm not sure I agree with one thing, and you said it's outgrown the idea of the smaller places. I'm looking at this and I'm thinking... I'm not sure that that's the case. I'm not sure that going to a place that has a 7,000-seat arena isn't the ultimate goal now, isn't the best fit for this, this tournament. Well, I don't know the size of uh, the, the uh, arena in Victoria, but they have an OHL team, They've had or a Western Hockey League team. They've had an AHL team, an ECHL team, the Victoria Salmon Bellies. So I imagine that building's probably five, six, seven thousand. I've been to Kelowna, that's about what it is. So I think your secondary building can be like that, but to put it in Toronto and Montreal. And when I say I think it's all grown it, what I think it's all grown is probably JL Greatmeyer Arena in Dundas. Of course. Yeah, okay. So, so so I don't think – but there are games that you could put in the Mountain Arena in the Brantford Civic Centre that, you, you know, you, you, would, you, would, you would fill them, but, you know, it's not going to be lined up to get them because it's not going to be Russia, Sweden, U.S., Canada – you know, the checks. Don, has it outgrown it when you have the tournament in Canada every second year? Because that's the other thing I wonder, if, if it's just reached almost a saturation point to say, you know, I understand that it's the only country where you can actually move tickets. I get that. I understand why they want it here. But when you have it in Canada every second year and sometimes in the same proximity, it's not. it doesn't strike me that it's necessarily going to be that special 
all the time. So am I going to spend this money if I can, if I know a year from now or two years from now, I can go again. I think where they made the mistake was they come back to the well too quickly. I think if they, if they want to do this and you want to include Toronto, Montreal, I wouldn't do it in Toronto, Montreal again, but they're not asking me. I would do it uh, perhaps in Toronto and uh, maybe Barry, you know, a couple of the outlying Kitchener, you know, a couple of those buildings, maybe even London. Those guys don't have any trouble. And you could probably sell it. I think the, but I think if you want to keep coming back to Toronto or Montreal, they've learned their lesson. They're not junior markets, and the buildings are too big. I think they found uh, a good formula when you're going to play in Rogers Place in BC, where the Canucks play, and Victoria, because it's a smaller building. You put the B games there and put the, put the A games in the big building. These guys have got two big buildings, and they're finding out it doesn't work, and they sure can't do it in Toronto, in Montreal, Every two years, they've, they've proven that, and they won't do it again. But again, I can see Toronto Barry Kitchener working, or you know, I, I was I co-chaired a committee when David Adams was in charge of recreation back in around two thousand and three or four, whenever it was in Ottawa. And uh, I, you know, I, I told him I thought we'd have limited success. Larry Clark co-chaired it with me, Liz at Ancaster, and I was life member of the OHA, so you know he had some swagger. But we didn't have a junior team. So we were destined to probably fail. But the price tag to host them, you had to guarantee Hockey Canada $11 million. So it's not for the faint of heart. You can't put it in too small a building. Yeah. I imagine that, imagine that guarantee. I mean, that could easily be 15. I know the Oilers, and uh, talking to my buddy from the Oilers, they did, Edmonton and Calgary did not get rich by hosting the game. They did okay. They used the infrastructure, but they, you know, they sold all the buildings out, but the teams didn't get rich. Hockey Canada did. It makes me wonder, though, and this is this may be a leap. I don't know, maybe a stretch, but it, we know the Hamilton Bulldogs are bidding on the Memorial Cup for 2018, and it does make me wonder if David Branch and the rest of the people involved in junior hockey look at this and say it's not something right now that with the ticket prices we want in the building size we want it's not something that's going to work in a building that big and i wonder if this does anything to the bulldogs hopes of getting that memorial cup because you've got regina that's got a six or six and a half thousand seat arena in a slightly smaller center in intensive junior hockey country where you know that every game could be sold out whether the home team is playing or not I wonder if they look at it and they say, eh, I don't know if we can put 17,000 people in a building when the Bulldogs aren't playing, or even if they are. I was in, I was in London when the Edmonton Oil Kings beat the Guelph Storm, and it was a fabulous venue. I went to a couple of games down in London, um, and that size venue worked very well. I think Hamilton's chances, and I, I sure hope they can get it. I mean, it'd be great for the city if it, if it could work, but um, I think... I think we just lost Don. Oh, he's still there? So, sorry, Don, we lost you for a second. You were just saying what you thought was going to happen with the Memorial Cup. Yeah, with the, in Hamilton, if uh, I think if the Bulldogs were putting in 9,000 a night and filling the lower bowl, they'd be in much better shape. It's well, and again, if you're if you're David Branch, who's the guy who runs junior hockey in this country ostensibly, and you are looking at what's happening in Toronto and Montreal. With similar size arenas to what we have here, and the World Junior Tournament, even for Canada's games, 
is having a hard time drawing. I, I, I hope you're right. I hope it's not the case. I hope we do get this tournament, but it's got to make him a little. It's got to make him a little nervous. It has to. Well, like I like I said, if they were doing what Kitchener and London did do, and and drawing nine thousand a night and only had to build on that, it would it would vote better for them. But you're right; they've got to take a look at it and say we're selling this thing, and do we want eleven or do we want uh, eleven thousand people in a eighteen thousand seat building for the Memorial Cup? Eleven thousand is a lot of people, damn near twice what Regina would draw. But it's the optics of the building isn't full and they can't sell it out. That's the trouble. Now, the difference would be, Scott, is ticket prices. Yeah, they would have to be reasonable as opposed to what the World Juniors is going after. Right. I mean, you're, I mean, people would pay for the finals of Memorial Cup. They'd pay 75 bucks a ticket. I, I, I have no knowledge of what their price point would be. But, you know, you're going to have to sell the upper bowl, you know, at, at reasonable prices. Like, and I'm guessing now it's. 20 bucks, right? Because you want it full. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I would hope that if they, if that was to come here, that a lesson would be learned from this, that there's, you can't get greedy. And when you have the Grey Cup and you've had TFC and you've had all these different things going on all, and the, and the Leafs and the Raptors, there has been, it appears, some greed going on. Let's see if we can gouge the Toronto market, the Southern Ontario market, and it's, it's now starting to bite them. Well, I think it's biting them, and you know, an interesting stat, and that's what guys like you were good at, is it would be interesting to see in the last 40 days how many people have attended sporting events in the city of Toronto. And I think the number would blow you away. And that, and that's what having the Leafs out of town. Of course, they did, they did have 30,000 there on New Year's Day, but you know what I mean? For the most part, the Leafs and Raptors have been away. But if you look at how many people have had to pay and, and how much money has been paid out dollar volume in Toronto for tickets, that might answer some of your problems, too. Question. Don Robertson, the guy who runs the Dundas Real McCoys. When do you guys play next at home? We are going to play the Hamilton Steel Hawks Friday night on Bob Kemp Hospice Fundraising and Awareness. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Great, Meyer. Don, appreciate you doing this tonight. Thanks for the time. All right, Scott. Thank you. It is, you know, let's stick with the Hamilton thing for just a second because it's a really interesting situation. This is not the, the World Juniors right now has nothing to do with the Hamilton Bulldogs. There's not a Bulldog player playing in it. Hopefully by next year there would be. So this has got nothing directly to do with the Hamilton Bulldogs. But I have to believe that there is going to be something when the World Ju- when when David Branch, when the OHL, when the Canadian Hockey League are looking at who they're going to choose to host the Memorial Cup. And they demand. They have a certain amount that you have to pay. The Bulldogs, to get this game, if they win the right to bid, they are going to have to guarantee a certain amount of money, which is going to have to then set the bar for what the ticket prices are. And can you sell enough tickets in order to make that, at least to make that money back? At least. You don't want to take this, you don't want this thing to be a big money loser. And here's where it gets so interesting. Toronto, Montreal have shown... If you make the tickets too expensive, even for an event like this, even for a big event like the World Juniors, they won't necessarily fill the place unless, except for the very much, very most important games. I have no doubt the gold medal game is going to be sold out and probably the semifinal game too. But for the Memorial Cup, does that mean you're going to have 4,000 people in the stands for all the round robin games? That's not going to be good enough. And then you look at 
how Hamilton did. And, I'm, and it's not a fair comparison directly, but you look at how Hamilton did with the Vanier Cup game. It was a disaster. You had two neutral site teams, Calgary and Laval, and there was nobody there. It was a disaster. And you look at what happened with the Grey Cup just down the road, and it was almost a disaster. And the outdoor game was not sold out. And now you've got this with the juniors. I, it be start. It starts to become something where I really begin to wonder if Canadian hockey, if the Canadian Hockey League, if Dave Branch are going to start to say, you know, it's a safer bet. Maybe not as big a splash. Maybe not the opportunity for as big a crowd. But it is a safer bet to go somewhere like Regina, where we know we can fill our building every single game of that tournament, no problem. Than to come to Hamilton. Well, first of all, there is a bulldog at the World Juniors, but I think it speaks well, to... Well, not on Team Canada. Not on Team Canada. Yeah. He's playing for Team Marianne Slovakia. Yes. But uh, I think that Hamilton is very much a big game market. And and for something like the Memorial Cup, I think the danger is not that people wouldn't show up when the Bulldogs are playing, because I think they would. I think the danger is the games the Bulldogs aren't in. Because Absolutely. It, if, you, if you think back to the Calder Cup playoffs, a, any of the runs, essentially, because they went to the playoffs, what, 13 out of or 15 out of 17 years or something like that, 15 out of 18, they whatever did, it they was. They did well for a long while. They did really quite well and people showed up in, mm. the, in the playoffs for mm. the most part, more than they would in the regular season. More than they would in the regular season. But let me remind you that the in 2003, the spring of 2003, some people will remember that in Game 7, the Bulldogs went to Game 7 against the Houston Arrows I and was it was there. sold out. 17,000 people. Fantastic. Bulldogs played the worst game of the year, lost 3 oh, 0, lost the Calder Cup, but they had a full house, 17,000 people. The game before that, so the sixth game of the Calder Cup finals, they had 10,000 for. And before that, it was a lot less than that. The game that they had, the four overtime game, which at the time was the longest playoff game in AHL history, I believe the number was about 8,000. So it, it's not been. Full. So there would be well, work. There see, would be work to do to fill that building, even for the Bulldogs. I, I can understand what you're saying, but 8,000, 10,000, those are good numbers. Sure they are. For, no, ju- those- for junior hockey. So if you can get that number, that's not bad. The problem is that the arena holds 17. But and so this, is my, this is my point. If you're coming to Hamilton, if you are the, and I want the Memorial Cup here, but if you're coming to Hamilton, if you're the Canadian Hockey League and you choose Hamilton as the host site of your 100th anniversary, the reason you are choosing Hamilton, or at least one of the biggest reasons, is because it's by far the biggest arena so you can put more people into it. But you don't want to have it looking empty. You don't want that visual. So you have to choose, do we take a Regina that has 6,500, I think, seats in it that will be full? Every single seat, every crevice in that building will be jammed with people and it'll be loud. Or do we take an extra, maybe we can sell 8,000, so we sell an extra 1,500 tickets, but we still have a lot of empty spots in the building. That's a tough call for them. That's going to be a tough call. And that's also going to go to the Bulldogs to say, do we think we can get 9,000. Can we fill the lower bowl at least for every single game of the Memorial Cup? And then the whole building for the championship game? Because that's ultimately what you would probably realistically be looking to do. Here's the thing, though. If the Bulldogs host the Memorial Cup, they get the host spot. If the other team from the Ontario Hockey League is the London Knights, then there's only one game you have to worry about, and that's the W against the Q. And ideally, that's the only time those two teams will play. Because if the Knights and the Bulldogs are representing the Ontario Hockey League, I have zero doubt 
that that lower bowl would be full for every single game. Because oh, yeah, or those even are, Kitchener. Even or, or, or Kitchener, Kitchener. sure. Like, that's that's another good one where they the, the people will come. I, I would say even Oshawa might have a small chance of doing it because their fans do travel really well from what I've experienced. But the point being, London and Kitchener, you can guarantee that you would sell out the lower bowl. And then all you have to worry about is the W and the Q. And really, when you're talking about Memorial Cups in other places, other than out West, because for some reason, the junior hockey does incredibly well out there. But when you're talking about junior hockey Memorial Cups in Quebec, you still have to worry about the game between the Ontario Hockey League if it's not a marquee team and the Western Hockey Except League. there is no Quebec to worry about this time because it's down to three finalists, which is Oshawa, Regina, no, no, or, but, or but Hamilton. I, I'm talking about like in past Memorial Cups. Sure. Like it's, even though they're playing it in smaller rings, and they've played in Montreal before. They've played the Memorial Cup in Montreal. Like we, You're still worrying about the game between the out-of-province uh, uh, teams. Uh, uh, sure. Absolutely. But here, what, you're, what it's down to is do you want, if you come to Hamilton... It's for proximity to Toronto, which is the first thing for media and for people to get here, but also for the size of the arena. And if you think that you're only going to get the same number of people as in Regina, does Hamilton really then have an advantage? And what I find so amusing, and when I say amusing, I don't really, I mean, it's, it's sarcastic, is that once again, Things that are happening down the road in Toronto, out of our control largely, are probably having an effect on what's going to happen here with a sports event. I, I, I absolutely believe that what has happened in the World Juniors with Toronto and Montreal will at least be part of the discussion when it comes to Hamilton. It may not have the ultimate effect, the ultimate impact. In fact, I know it won't because the ultimate impact is going to be will Michael Anlauer, will the owner of the Bulldogs be willing to write a check to cover the guarantee. And if he feels that it can be done, I think he will. But ultimately, he now he's got to look at it and say, okay, can we find the advertising? Can we find the sponsors? And when I look at what happened in Toronto and Montreal, do I think I can put a certain number of people in the building here in Hamilton? And based on what we're seeing there, that has to at least give pause. It has to at least make someone wonder is the appetite for junior hockey in Southern Ontario as strong as I would hope that it would need to be for hosting a Memorial Cup? You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Google did, well, if you search for Google, what I mean, I guess when people do New Year's resolutions today in the modern world, you want to find out, I guess, how you can keep up with your resolution or who else is doing your resolution with you or whatever else. Cause people, I guess, search resolutions and then search particular ones. And so Google has tracked which ones are the biggest ones to come up with a list of which are the most common resolutions for the beginning of 2017. Well, I think it would be no surprise that Getting healthy, getting fit is number one on the list. I would have to think that that's number one on the list every single year, isn't it? Lose weight, get fit, get more active, go out walking, go running, get to the gym. I mean, I'll tell you what, people who own gyms love New Year's, love New Year's. I'll tell you why. I was talking to an owner one time, true story, talking to an owner of a gym one time, and I'd been attending for a while, and I simply asked him, when is my fee? When is my monthly fee going to go up? 
And he said, it's never going to go up. And I was only paying, I don't know, 15 or 18 or 20 bucks a month. I don't know what it was. And he goes, it's never going up. And I said, what do you mean it's never going up? How can your business survive when it never goes up? He goes, I'll tell you. And he asked me not to repeat this, but enough water has gone under the bridge. I don't mind. It's been years and years. The answer is that every New Year's, hundreds of people go to gyms and buy memberships. And they, on automatic deduct, sign up so that $20 or $30 or $25 a month automatically comes out of their visa bill. And it becomes habitual. You don't even notice it anymore. It's just my gym membership. If you raise it, suddenly they're going to notice it because here's the thing. Most of them, the vast majority of them go to the gym for a period of time, as you well know, go for a while and then it sort of falls off, but the fee keeps coming off their visa bill. Well, we don't want to raise it because then they're going to notice that that bill is still being paid. And so there is something like a 30% usage rate of most gyms, 60%, 70% of the people who are paying a monthly fee to go to the gym, never, ever set foot in that place. So gym owners love new years because everyone says, oh, I'm going to get in shape. I went and signed up for the gym and maybe they last for a month and get the $25 worth out of their membership. But if it's a $25 membership, that means that the next $275 worth of membership is wasted because they don't go back for the rest of the year. So number one, get healthy. That was by far the highest Google search for New Year's resolution. Number two, any guesses? Throw up your hand out there if you're listening. Get organized was number two. Number three, live life to the fullest. Now that was up 13% over last year, that particular one. Everybody apparently, 2017 is about live life to the fullest. Number four, learn a new hobby. That's up slightly from last year, just just up a tiny bit. By the way, get healthy was number one before, but it went up by 14% as well. Uh, So get healthy, get organized, live life to the fullest, learn something new, learn a new hobby. Number five, my personal favorite, which I vow every year and then promptly screw up, spend less and save more. Always my intention, always a failure by about April. It's gone. Last year, I vowed that I was not going to buy anything new. I was only going to replace things that had to be replaced. So I was not going to add any new items to my life. And I did okay till probably about April. And then I kind of forgot and well, it went downhill from there. Number six, travel. And number seven on the list, read more. Okay. Get healthy, get organized, live life to the fullest, learn a new hobby, spend less and save more, travel and read more. Okay. You got that list? Let's skip over to Time Magazine's list of the 10 most commonly broken New Year's resolutions. What do you think is going to be on this list? Number one, what was the number one thing for the Google New Year's resolutions? Get healthy. What is the number one thing on Time Magazine's list of most commonly broken New Year's resolutions? Get healthy. Told you, that is, that is, everybody said, oh, it's Christmas, I put on 10 pounds, I got to lose my 10 pounds. The number one broken New Year's resolution was get healthy, lose weight. Number two, which actually falls into the same thing. What do you think, Luke, what do you think number two would be? It fills, it ties into the whole health thing. 
uh, eat better? Quit smoking. Thank oh, you. quit smoking. Quit smoking. <laughs> but that falls into the get healthy. So number one, the two most commonly dropped New Year's resolutions are the one that everyone this year is wanting to do. Also on the list, what was the number four item on Google's list? Learn a new hobby. What is number two on, or number three, on Time Magazine's list of most commonly dropped New Year's resolution? Learn something new. Number four was eat healthy and diet. Well, that goes back to number one. So if you're thinking that this is going to be your year, that you're going to get healthy, get fit, quit smoking, get your body into temple-like shape, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, and I don't want to say that you can't do it, and I don't want to be dumping on your optimism But there's a very high likelihood that you are about to experience a colossal level of failure. If you're weighing, if your body mass index is at a 50% fat right now, chances are you're not venturing far off that. I hope for you. I hope that you're going to be able to lose all the weight and get yourself in shape. But based on most people's response, uh, little chance. You're, You're going to be the same as you were. Okay, what else is on the list of things that people wanted to do this year. Spend less money, save more money. What was number five on the list of Time Magazine's most commonly broken New Year's resolutions? Spend, get out of debt, and save money. So that one's a lost cause too. What was on here? Travel. Travel is a big one. Uh, People really want to travel this year, it says. Top 10 commonly most broken New Year's resolution according to Time Magazine. Number seven, travel. Uh, what else do we have on here? Learn new hobbies. Uh, let's see. Well, that's not really, oh yes. Learn something new was number three. Every single item that you would find on Google's list of new year's resolutions from this year that people searched for this year that they want to do is on top on time magazines list of most commonly broken new year's resolutions. So again, I encourage you, I would urge you, go out and make yourself better. Quit smoking, quit drinking, learn something new, eat healthier, go running, get in shape, spend more time with your family, travel, get a hobby, all those things. Just don't expect that you're going to stick with it, which is so pessimistic, isn't it? I mean, it's so pessimistic, but it's the reality. And any of us who have ever, ever done these things, ever tried to do these things, we know you're not going to stick with it. Oh, I'd love you to. I I mean, I would love you to, and I'd love you to tell me in a month from now or two months from now, if you're listening tonight, and two months from now, you have stuck with your New Year's resolution. I want to hear from you because I want to congratulate you on the air that you are one of the rare folks that have actually stuck with something. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. I've tried it. I've failed. Sometimes it takes a little longer to fail, but ultimately I fail. I ne- you never stick with your resolutions, do you? Is there anybody who actually does? People change their lives for sure, but not because of New Year's. As I say, Frank, who wrote in before, was saying that you know he had a health scare, so he's been trying to get his life, his health back. Good for him, but that's because not because of New Year's. That's because something has happened in his life. Anyway, there is there is the list. There is what isn't going to happen. So I hope I'm wrong. I hope that people listening, I hope listeners of the Scott Radley show break with 
tradition and don't do what everyone around the world does, which is to set these high goals and then completely abandon them when it gets difficult or busy or whatever else. I'd love to think that we have the audience here that is so uniquely determined and focused that we can be different from the rest of the world. Just don't expect the person talking to you to be leading by great example, unfortunately. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.